Welcome to Your Cases on Hold, a JBJS podcast hosted by Antonia Chen and Andrew Schoenfeld. Here, we discuss the science of each issue of JBJS with an additional dose of entertainment and pop culture. Take us with you in the gym, on the commute, or most certainly, whenever your case is on hold. Welcome back to another episode of Your Case is on Hold. I'm Antonia Chen, Deputy Editor at JBJS, and only do the wonderful joints of the hip and the knee. And this is... I'm Andrew Schoenfeld, Deputy Editor for Methodology, and um, wearing, for those of you who are watching, instead of listening, a Michigan hat and Ralph Lauren t-shirt, because it's Sunday and we're recording. There are no designated off days in orthopedics, let alone orthopedic research. If you want a designated off day, anesthesia is your key. And they will put your case on hold. They will put your case on hold. And then when they're about to bring it back off hold, they'll be like, oh, but my shift is over. So you're going to have to wait for the next person. More hold and holding on to the hold. So these opinions are our own. They do not represent anything from JBJS or the editorial board. We want to give a shout out for sponsorship from JBJS Clinical Classroom. They are currently seeking orthopedic surgeons with at least five years of experience following residency or fellowship to join the clinical classroom team, develop questions and learning resources. If you're interested, you have to be board certified and enthusiastic about education and email customer support at jbjs.org to learn more. Without further ado, please take this away. Yeah, we're about to uh, jump into top of the pile. But before that, I want everyone to stay tuned, listen to the whole thing, get to the end of um, our presentation, because we're going to do five pro tips for publishing success as a bonus at the end of this episode. So stay tuned for that. Be sure to give us uh, five stars on Spotify, Apple, wherever you're listening, and also subscribe so that you can get all the notifications for each issue that comes out. Top of the pile for this issue, the September 7th issue of JBJS, we have uh, Hansen and colleagues discussing what's new in osteoporosis and fragility fractures. We have Al Souf and colleagues going over a current concepts review for machine learning for the orthopedic surgeon. Zuckerman and colleagues present an orthopedic essentials on becoming the quote-unquote historical perspective in the room. This is a what's important feature. And then we have Samora and colleagues uh, discussing AOA critical issues. Coaching separate from mentoring may provide skill acquisition, improved well-being, and career advancement in orthopedic surgery. So those are the uh, non-scientific pieces that are presented in the journal. You definitely want to check those out, all well worth the read. Moving into our headlines, my headline is validation of a predictive tool for discharge to rehabilitation or skilled nursing facility after total joint arthroplasty. This is, we don't do really special issues at JBJS, but this issue could be like the special total joint issue. I, I feel uh, certainly everything we're covering is uh, in the total joint category. So we can ask Antonia, why did you accept these? No, not, I'm in <laughs> not responsible. I'm not in responsible. Um, <laughs> there's all sorts of different deputy editors, but somebody's responsible. And um, I know, I know that you were just thinking, I really need a new predictive tool for something really minute in orthopedics. 
And rest assured, here's one. So this is work that was conducted in the NYU system, validating a uh, tool specifically designed to discharge to rehabilitation facility or a skilled nursing facility after total joint arthroplasty. They uh, had previously published an exploratory analysis putting the system together, and now they're looking to, to validate the system. But again, the validation is done in a set of patients, all of which are conducted in the NYU system that I can tell. And they have uh, close to 3,150 pa uh, patients uh, who underwent primary unilateral total hip or knee arthroplasty that were discharged to rehabilitation or a skilled nursing facility out of a total of 20,294, of which 48% are hip and 52% are knees. So they have the knees and hips together. They have about 16% of the cohort with the outcome of interest. And then based on the previously characterized scoring system, they're basically assigning the scores and seeing how this turns out. As we say on the methodology side, naked research has few secrets, flayed research has none. And getting into the nitty gritty here, predictably, the scoring utility performs fairly well. The tool for which they have the online predictive modality performed well, positive predictive value 79% higher, and number needed to screen 56% lower than their comparison, which is simple random selection. And that's where the, the, the whole cart starts to, to, to fall apart. Validation studies are a their own particular animal. And at the end of the day, in studies where all the data is generated from one particular system, you can call it a validation study, you can call it any number of things, but at best, a validation study like this can only really speak to the cohort at hand. So what it's doing is what it's doing within the cohort at hand. If you want to be broader, you generally have to have a broader cohort. It should be multi-center. It should be purposely sampled so that you have all of the various permutations and distributions covered. And that's really not, not done here or, or not demonstrated to me when you look at the tables. So at best, this type of validation study is validating it maybe for the NYU system or validating it for other systems that if you compare your performance to that of the NYU, your distributions, clinical and sociodemographic characteristics, if it all kind of matches up, then maybe yes, it will perform well in your system. But at worst, this is not actually a true validation, but rather a measure of the extent to which the decisions for patients to be discharged to rehab or a skilled nursing facility are the same between where the initial work was done and, and the NYU system. So it's it's if you use the same set of clinical factors to make a decision about who goes to rehab or SNF, SNF, skilled nursing facility, then they're going to show up as influential in your validation model. So if it, it's not necessarily that it's speaking to an absolute truth here. It's just that the systems are very similar to each to the other. Okay. And when you get to, we're doing so much better than simple random selection, no one makes decisions on clinical care at random. It's not like you go to skilled nursing and the next person will just go to rehab and the next person will go home. That, so comparison to a 
skill to to a random model is 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 a straw person comparison. It's really no comparison. What you want to compare to is how does this predictive tool change Dr. Chen's practice from where she sees the patient in the clinic and they are you know incredibly frail and have a number of medical comorbidities and you say right off the bat, this person's going to have to go to rehab. You, you, you're not going to go home, right? You see the patient and their family member and they're like, well, can they go home the next day? And you're like, absolutely. They cannot, they're not going to be able to go home the next day. So then if you apply this system to that, does it then say, no, actually they can go home. No, right. it's going to tell you the people that you're probably think should go to rehab or will need skilled nursing are the same people that the model is going to tell you. So these models have value when they can inform patient care, when they can drive clinical practice, when they can be a paradigm shift in clinical practice. And I'm not sure that this is really capable of doing any of those things. This is kind of the the next phase we went from before we had logistic regression analysis, there were simple bivariate comparisons in most papers in orthopedics. Then we got to logistic regression and you would just get like, what are the risk factors for discharge to rehabilitation or a skilled nursing facility? And they would just give you this litany. And then we kind of got immune to that and started saying, well, look, I mean, great. Like every analysis is telling us the same thing. So now they're the, the next phase is, well, we have a prediction tool that we built out of the regression analysis. It's not just what are the risk factors for X, Y, and Z, but now we're contextualizing them. And that, that's good. It's a good evolution. But at the same time, again, the, the need for this is, is not especially obvious. Correct me if I'm wrong. I think that clinician intuition will probably perform just as good um, for this particular minute issue, not minute in the sense that like it, this is an important thing. And they do in the introduction outline why it's important in today's healthcare economic environment, but it's like one particular item in a whole pathway of patient care needs. So a, a, a prediction tool for this versus the prediction tool for VTE prophylaxis versus the prediction tool for outpatient physical therapy versus the prediction tool. There are just too many prediction tools. You have to be really judicious in what prediction tools you're going to subscribe to. So I'm sorry, the case is on hold, but we have some wonderful pardon gifts for you. Always wonderful pardon gifts. I call it the sniff test. You know, you just kind of, not the SNF test, but it kind of is. Take a little sniff and you go, this person is probably not going to go home or not going to be an outpatient discharge. And they all have predictive scores and calculators for that, which, you know, are nice. I think the hardest part with all these prediction scores too, is that none of them are built automatically into your EMR. If they were automatically built into your EMR, then you could just literally, it would just pull it and just be like, this is our prediction. And we could see if it works or not. But to your point, we should try in all different facilities, not just one facility. And if I have to go to an external source, forget it. <laughs> too much effort and too much work that way. So I'm with you 100% on that. All right. Let's get into your headline. So my headline is my paper. So this is uh, looking at synovial fluid and serum neutrophil lymphocyte ratio, novel biomarkers for the diagnosis and prognosis of native septic arthritis in adults. Nathan Verity is the first author and it's free for 30 days. So this actually started because one of my research assistants at the time, Pierre-Emmanuel Schwab, was looking at NLR as a diagnostic tool in a bunch of different backgrounds, uh, appendicitis, bacteremia, pneumonia, cardiac. 
And it's basically an inflammatory marker. And it's a ratio. It's already exists in what we normally get, right? It's calculated by dividing the absolute neutrophil count by the absolute absolute lymphocyte count. But it hadn't really been used in um, joints or orthopedics that much. So we said, well, if it's being used in other parts of medicine. Why don't we try using this in um, our part of medicine, orthopedics, which is obviously the best part of uh, medicine. So it was really nice. Uh, Nathan did a fantastic job um, bringing the product over to finish line and performing comprehensive analyses. And we really want to focus on septic arthritis as opposed to PJI because there's plenty of data on PJI, right? And there've been data since looking at PJI and the NLR ratio. But looking specifically at septic arthritis, we combined the hip, knee, and shoulder. The downside is that we weren't able to separate the three joints. I would love to be able to do so. You need larger databases to do that. But at least we were able to have the three major large joints. We didn't include ankle in it uh, when it came to native septic arthritis. The hard part is that the current count of like 50,000 white blood cell count now is somewhat arbitrary, right? If you have gout, that's going to increase it. If you have rheumatoid arthritis, it's going to increase it. So 50,000 count is a tool and the number we use. I use that as a resident. The residents still use it now too. So things haven't changed a whole lot. That said, we wanted to look at this marker, not just as a diagnostic marker, but also as a prognostic marker, right? So having the benefit of the two, the downside about doing the two of them, though, is hard to do them with the same one. And that's what we ended up separating into synovial fluid, NLR, and serum NLR. So the synovial fluid NLR we use for diagnostic purposes, and that's specific to the joint, the shoulder, hip, or knee. And then for diagnostic purposes or prognostic purposes, we use serum NLR, the downside, and you can see from this study, is that not every provider, because it's a retrospective study, not every provider ordered a differential on their sample, which limits the number of samples that we could include in each group. So we had a higher number of the differentials in our synovial fluid group, which makes sense. Whenever we order it, we always get the diff because we want to know the polymorphonucleosides and we get a whole written down. But when we get CBC, we don't do always order CBC with diff. And if it didn't have a diff, we couldn't do prognostic variables on it. That said, most of the patients who did get NLR ratio and they did get the diff also got ESR, got CRP and serum white blood cell count. So we could compare against the three variables. So the gold standard was a positive bacteria culture result. We know that's not always the best one. That's what most people use for positive septic arthritis. We know that there's culture negative infections, but at least we knew there was an infection present because of the positive bacteria. But at the end of the day, what I really like is that it's a simple, cal- a simple marker to calculate. We already collect this when we get our synovial fluid sample. And with our synovia fluid sample, we can calculate the NLR. And we demonstrated that NLR was better than synovia fluid, sorry, synovia fluid NLR was better at diagnosis than synovia fluid uh, polymorphonucleosides and white blood cell counts. So you can just calculate it and see that it's present or not there. And then from prognostic standpoint, if you're getting their blood values, which you probably are anyway, when you're bringing in a septic patient or patient with septic arthritis, then if you calculate this, um, it performs pretty similarly um, to serum white blood cell and CRP for 90-day treatment failure. So it's not so exciting for that one, but it's pretty exciting for predicting mortality, especially since white blood cell count, CBC, and ESR weren't as good. So in those cases, it's also nice to say that, you know, things that also affect mortality, uh, 90-day mortality were diabetes and the history of CHF. So these kind of things were one of those things we're looking at it as a marker that was already present. We were able to utilize it and put it to work. And the downsides of it, it's a small subset. So we'd love to be able to expand this cohort if other people wanted to collaborate with it. But it gives us a marker that we can work forward with. Definitely. Um, really interesting stuff. The uh, 
the neutrophil lymphocyte ratio has uh, been studied uh, in in spine, um, some of which uh, have come from MGH, some of which have co come from us uh, in the Brigham side. Uh, it does seem like a, a very useful, simple data point that is cheap because it's already like factored in, like you said, once you get the differential. Do you think that there was any, probably not, I, I can't really imagine not, but I'm just going to pose it anyway, a selection bias in like they, they thought that there was a higher risk of infection in the people who were getting the differential versus those that were ordering the CBC without it. I think probably not. My guess is not because most of the time it's provider dependent, right? Is that they just automatically check off CBC with diff. Like when I do my patients, even for pre-op testing, I do CBC with diff um, regardless. So it's probably provider that does it, but who knows? And plus it could be historical, like the older patients may have not have gotten in as time went on, they got CBC with diff. So hard to tell. Okay. I think that brings us into our uh, Your Cases on Hold featurette. So your Cases on Hold time. <laughs> this study is from Hoskins and colleagues. Is the revision rate for femoral neck fracture lower for total hip arthroplasty than for hemiarthroplasty? Comparison of registry data for surgical options. This is uh, another paper out of the uh, Australian National Joint Replacement Registry. It's really the, the golden era of, of work coming out of this registry. We've, and JBGS have published several um, articles from this registry in recent years, and even just since we've been we've covered articles from this group previously uh, on your your cases on hold. I thought this was actually a, a very interesting study. It highlights several uh, important best practices in terms of what you should be doing in clinically relevant orthopedic research, posing a specific question presenting a compelling rationale for that question. Patients in a specific group, 60 to 85 years old, who were treated with arthroplasty for femoral neck fracture over a 20 year period were included. They compared those who had total hip to those who had a hemiarthroplasty. They accounted for competing risks of revision and death with a cumulative incidence function. They have good numbers. 4,500 plus THA and close to 30,000 hemiarthroplasty procedures looking at revision rates over time. And then they distill it all down to an actual easily accessible and understandable bite. <laughs> you know, when considering patients with femoral neck fractures, they basically say their findings say there's a benefit with respect to revision rates for total hips in women who are less than 75 and a benefit for hemiarthroplasty in women who are greater than 80 and men who are over 75, with no difference in, in dislocation rates. So I think that that's really nice. It's something that is easily dichotomized. I guess there's a gray area for women between 75 and, and 80. I do think that, you know, realistically, the conclusions could be a, a little bit more nuanced. <laughs> and, and certainly, they don't account for frailty or physiologic age, because uh, I certainly, granted, I'm not doing the, the hip replacements, but I see patients in my office who are 93 and still playing pickleball and living by themselves. And then I see patients who are 63 and like are in a wheelchair and with an oxygen O2 nasal cannula. And so 
there's more that goes into it than age is certainly a lot more than just a number. I know that's cliche, but I think that the recommendations do probably need to be a little bit more nuanced. In addition, and not to belabor the point, this is an Australian population. Uh, I'm not sure that findings for the Australian demographic are necessarily 100% translatable to the U.S. Uh, population. It is it is registry data. They use the ASA score, which, as we've discussed before, is not the most granular when it comes to medical comorbidities. And then I think if you look at the uh, Table 1 BMI numbers, these are uh, particularly striking. Almost half the population of patients in the total hip class and more than half the population in the hemiarthroplasty were underweight or normal. That's not year. <laughs> now, hip fracture patients tend to be a little bit skinnier. That's no doubt about that, probably, as you become more frail. But that also speaks to frailty, right? Underweight sometimes is a bigger thing. It spanned a really long period of time, 20 years, which is, mm-hmm. you know, that's where you get so much data, right? But that's you get so many patients, but at the same time, care has changed immensely over 20 years. I agree with you. It's one of those things where this is good for the population that they've delineated, and it would be actually interesting to see this repeated in other registries as well. Um, they did limit it to on 85 years old, so 60 to 85. So they did try to capture a group as opposed to over 85, which probably would be a lot more frail. And they did include only cemented stems, which I thought was a smart move, right? Because with only the cemented stems, you are defining a certain set of patients, which probably wouldn't benefit or wouldn't um, do well with cementless stems, meaning they're probably going to be less likely to have good bone quality. So periprosthetic fracture risk would be higher, which they did show as one of the main causes for revision for most of the patients. Um, they also remove things like a highly crosslinked polyethylene, uh, which makes sense too, right? Because if you have non-highly crosslinked polyethylene, that could be a reason for revision entirely separate from the actual procedure that they got. But then they used larger, only included larger heads. Back in 1999, there were mostly small heads being used, 22, 28. So if you're looking at 36 and dual mobility, that wasn't until much later. So that is another skewed bias that comes from the study itself by using such a large time frame. And you can see that in the patient population, right? 4,500 total hips, but then over 29,000 hemiarthroplasties. So it really is a skewed population in that way, I would say. I think infection actually would have been an interesting outcome, but again, too many comorbidities. There's a lot of factors that are missing there. Age is just an age, right? Age is just a number and BMI is just a number. It would have been nice to have them include a bunch of other variables that would have been helpful. So at the end of the day, I think the thing that also gets to me as someone who does do hip replacement surgeries and who does hip fracture surgeries is that a lot of times it's surgeon choice, right? If they see the patient or, or surgeon's comfort level, right? I know if a sports surgeon takes call, for example, and um, they don't feel comfortable putting a total hip, they'll put a hemiarthroplasty in, right? So will that patient do better or worse because of, you know, a choice of what's done, the total hip or the hemiarthroplasty? It's hard to tell. Um, so there's a lot of variables that are not controlled for here, I would say, and you just can't get in a registry setting, unfortunately. So, but it's a good thought and a good start and gives you some concrete numbers, which is nice. Yeah, definitely. And again, you know, read the work, see how their population matches up with the population that you're trying to treat. And maybe just, you know, taking into account that may not be applicable in the case of dramatic differences in frailty, regardless of age, some general good guidelines. I think this is definitely something that those who are in the uh, whatever testing phase you may be, I think this is definitely 
the type of work that will show up on OITE or be board examinable or be a web-based longitudinal assessment fodder in the future. You mean Kaiser Sose? No, because again, like I think you can readily see the fact that I'm saying like this is not sneakiness. This is it's just it's out there. It's clear. <laughs> it's got that, you know, good clinical question, a simple answer, a dichotomized, simple to understand. It just lends itself to writing these questions. Perfect. So when I write a question, this is what I'm going to do. <laughs> yeah, you should just, um, you know, check, like write it down because I said it and then you can uh, just write the question about it and then that will just prove me right. Perfect. I like that. I like proving you right. <laughs> All right. I think it's toss up time. We have a, a toss up. We're back into the toss ups. We don't have this segment in every episode anymore, but we do have one here. Here's the toss up question. Are you ready for it? What are the immediate clinical application prospects for this paper? And this paper is the revision risk for total knee arthroplasty polyethylene designs in patients 65 years of age or older. This is an analysis of the American Joint Replacement Registry. This is by Kendall and colleagues, and there is a commentary. So you don't have to take my word for it. You can see what others think as well. This was an analysis of the American Joint Replacement Registry. Great that it's, a, as opposed to the previous paper, a very narrow time window, just 2012 to 2019, identifying all primary total knee arthroplasties uh, that were then linked to supplemental uh, CMS data if available. And these authors were looking at analyses to compare minimally stabilized implants or with posterior stabilized implants. So that's the clinical question. And they're looking at the uh, cumulative incidence function, another appearance for this, curves and Cox proportional hazard ratios for all cause revision and revision for infection in each group. There are incredible number of patients, as you can imagine, over 305,000 cases. Uh, and pretty evenly distributed, 52.9% using posterior stabilized and then 47.1% with the others. Now, a question that comes to mind is, is there some type of selection or indication? And when I look at their table one, I really get into the question of how well are they able to account for confounding? Because table one is supposed to delineate the demographic characteristics and they literally have the patient's sex, the age group broken down 65 to 74, 75 to 84, over 85, and then just the, the bearing, posterior stabilized, minimally stabilized, and then the three iterations of the minimally stabilized. So they did find an increased risk of all-cause revisions and revision for infection for the posterior stabilized bearings. How clinically applicable is this? It's a great question. Um... If you ask people what inserts they use, it's like a religion. They use CS or CR or, you know, medial pivot because that's what works best in their hands. If they do PS, they've used PS because that's what they trained with and it works in their hands. So they use it forever. So the clinical applicability of it is kind of hard to say. I don't think I would switch from PS if my patients were doing well. Sorry, with PS, if I was doing PS. I wouldn't switch with it because of this paper alone. 
What's interesting, a thing I would say about it is, um, one, it does show that AJRR findings are similar to other findings in other registries, which is actually kind of nice because our registry is limited. To your point of what you said in the very beginning about CMS is that we can only do longitudinal follow-up on patients with the national insurance, and that's only 65 and above. So as long as they were paired patient, that really narrows down our patient population, right? Definitely the people who get total who get total hips, or sorry, total knees, you know, between the ages of you know less than 65, of course. Absolutely. Right. So we really lose out on a good population patient, a good portion of the patient population that we could actually be investigating um, because we really can focus on 65 and above. So it's a major limitation to this sort of thing. So, you know, from the clinical applicability part, you know, I wouldn't say to someone, stop using PS because, you know, you're going to cause more harm to your patients because if it really was more harmful, then it would be something that we wouldn't even offer. But clearly that's not what's happening, right? So I would just take it with a grain of salt and just caution people. If you start seeing a lot of complications in your patient population because you're doing something like PS, maybe you want to consider doing other inserts. But I will take to say that comes with a huge caveat is because the balancing is different or how you do approach, you know, taking the PCL every time when you do PS versus titrating the PCL release if you're tight inflection, you can make it worse by switching in these patients as well. The all-cause revisions uh, would be nice to know in all honesty. Plunk, you know, for example, if that was one of the reasons for revision, which I don't think you actually provide the components, but repeat surgery, that's really, you know, PS related. But what if it's a patient factor? If a patient's more obese or had ligament stability and they put in a PS post because they needed more stability, well, they're more likely to fail. So likely have all-cause revision. So it's not necessarily driven with all the patient factors that we'd all want to know and have, which is nice in the institutional setting as opposed to the AJRR setting. And, you know, one thing I want to ask you from a methodological standpoint, if you're looking at the cost proportional hazard ratio, if you're looking at 1.8 with a confidence interval of 1.0 to 1.4, that's not so good, is it? Oh, no, not, not at all. I, I was going to mention that on the tail end, so I'm so glad you brought it up. But that's exactly right. When the confidence interval includes 1.0, it doesn't really matter what the, the p-value is saying that's not really a, a finding that you can really invest in as significant. So it's basically in a lot, I mean, this is already an incredibly large sample. So it seems kind of strange to be saying, well, we would need a larger sample of patients to figure this out. It's still a fairly wide confidence interval. There's a 40% point range from the lower bound to the upper bound with an 18% an eighteen increased risk of infection. That does sound pretty high or an 18% risk, uh, uh, 18% increase in the hazard of infection at the same time with a lower bound of 1.0, you, you can't really invest in it as decidedly different. Agreed. I'm glad my methodology editor agrees with me. Oh, you're on top of it. <laughs> uh, absolutely. So now we're going to move into the honorable mentions. We have uh, understanding noise exposure during cast removal, the effect of cast saw type and casting material from Shaw and colleagues. That's also free for 30 days. And then we have the trunk range of motion and patient outcomes after anterior vertebral body tethering versus posterior spinal fusion comparison using computerized 3D motion capture technology by Pays and colleagues. This is followed by clinical and radiographic outcomes of revision total ankle arthroplasty using the InBone 2 prosthesis from Jam Jum and colleagues. This comes with a commentary and also continues the increasing number of articles that have been included in JBJS in this last year on total ankle arthroplasty. I feel like there should just be a special issue on that or some type of commemorative fest shrift. 
spinal compared with general anesthesia and contemporary primary total hip arthroplasties by Owen and colleagues. This has an infographic and then an enhanced understanding of culture negative periprosthetic joint infection with next generation sequencing, a multi-center study from Goswami and colleagues. And this has a visual summary for our visual learner friends. That wraps up all of the clinical material in this jam-packed issue of the Journal of Bone and Joint Surgery. It really seems like almost every article had the potential to be selected for us to cover. Very interesting stuff, very informative stuff, some controversial stuff, mostly uh, with a few exceptions, all about joint arthroplasty. I love it. This is the best issue ever. We should just continue taking these articles and spreading them out. <laughs> we did have and, a foot ankle run, though. We did have a foot yeah, ankle. No, there's definitely. Like I'm saying, I'm saying, like you can have like a special summary. Get all your test questions just on the foot and ankle material. Just the foot and ankle joint arthroplasty material. That's true. <laughs> but um, now, uh, as promised, I'm going to cover my five pro tips for publishing orthopedic research success. So some of this, maybe you could have put together from some of the things even that we just talked on today, if not from previous Your Case Size on Hold episodes. But the first one of the, these are not necessarily in order of importance, they're all equally important. But the first one I have is the research should be hypothesis driven. You want to have at like the end of the introduction, a very easily understood, this is what, this is the experiment we were trying to conduct. This is the the thing about the natural order, the real orthopedic world that we're trying to understand or simulate through our investigation. Number two, you want it to, to really convey it's clinically relevant and it's necessary in the current state of the literature. And this should be conveyed in the introduction. You really want to help the reader, the reviewer, the editor understand this is why this work needs to be done. And this is how it directly applies to clinical practice. Then. Number three, you want to have an analytic plan that makes sense in light of your research question. So you want to use propensity score matching or some type of causal inference testing. Well, you should have a clinical question that relates to that. You don't want to use propensity score matching just to say, what are the risk factors for outcome X in condition Y? Like that doesn't make sense for using propensity score match. So there's lots of very elegant, different types of approaches, generalized linear modeling, hierarchical modeling, things that people really want to take advantage of, but you should be taking advantage of it with a specific purpose in mind. And that should also be clearly conveyed and readily understood. Number four, you want to make your limitations and your discussion section thoughtful. Don't overinvest in findings. Don't say we've proven that this is the greatest thing ever and everyone should be doing this unless you really have proven that beyond a shadow of a doubt. The, the discussion section should contextualize your work as far as what other literature is out there and exists, emphasize the take-home message, emphasize next steps in the research paradigm that may flow from your work. And, and the limitations should not really just be all throwaways. Oh, it was a retrospective study. And yeah, it was from a single center. Those are the only limitations. I, it, I mean, it should really be like you, you've taken a look at this, a hard, long look, and are saying these are the potential shortcomings or at least the issues with this work that the reader should be aware, uh, aware of. And then number five, you want to spell out the clinical relevance of the findings and the application for the reader. So clearly say, 
These are the areas, and that was done in a lot of the work that we featured today. This is the clinical relevant finding. The seven, less than 75, they should get total hips. Greater than 80, they should have the hemiarthroplasty. And then how that that's the finding and also how it should be applied um, for the reader. So some really helpful, well done items that have illustrations in the work that we covered today. But those are my five pro tips. Do you have any amendments or changes? Fully support yours 100%. All right. I don't think yes, for now. I don't think there's anyone who has published more in like the last two years than you. So we'll take that at uh, face value. <laughs> Sleep is overrated. A national champion. <laughs> you got your Michigan hat on. I'm going to come next time with my paraphernalia. We'll see what happens. Yeah. Get that skull and bones hat out. <laughs> so I'll whip it out. Well, thanks. I appreciate it. Always a good time. And tune in next time for another round of Your Cases on Hold.